When I was growing up as a kid in Montana, uh, we lived in the kind of center part of the state, in the middle of the mountains there. Uh, one of the things that we would do, you had to get real creative for your entertainment, we'd play cowboys and Indians, okay? For real reasons that would, you know, if you lived there, you kind of know. And one of the, what we do is we'd call forts, okay? And so I'm pretty smart. I know the best fort on the top of the hill, right by the house, uh, I'd call the port. And like, that would be my port for me and my friends and my brother and his friend. I'm the oldest of four. Uh, they would, they'd be kind of down there, maybe next to the propane tank or somewhere in the bushes or something like that. And that would be their fort. And what would happen is you'd be running around and uh, you'd get kind of hungry and tired. And the reason that I picked the porch is because my mom would make cookies. Uh, she was a piano teacher, and, and there'd be holidays, and so she would like to make cookies in advance. She would make them. Uh, she would put them neatly arranged with wax paper, look real nice, and put it in these Tupperware bins. And she would put it in the freezer, and she'd tell us boys, I made these for Christmas, or I'm making this for their recital. Stay out of them. Well, of course, we did everything that she said, and we followed through with that. Until, of course, we got really hungry, right? And so, as it would be, I got the porch as my port, and so, well, guys, something like gnawing on some frozen cookies. We didn't really actually even need a deep freeze in the winter, but nonetheless, we, that's where they were found. So we'd pop this baby open, and you'd climb in there, right? And you'd start digging for these bins, and these plastic Tupperware bins, and you'd find them. And of course, you're smart, right? You don't take them on the very top. You take them from the middle rows, right? And so we extract some of these cookies there, and they're frozen. You know, you're gnawing on them, and everything else is frozen. You're bundled up in these snowmobile suits, and you're just eating these treats. Now, I explain this to you because I'm sure you're not very familiar with temptation and how it works in your own life, right? Wrong, huh? Ah, something we're really familiar with. And I explain it to you because whether it's... Um, a treat that we're not supposed to have, or a person. We all face temptation. And it is, it's widespread. Temptation exists everywhere. And we'd like to think that the older we get, the less we're going to experience and feel temptation. But the reality is, I've heard it from folks that have been around the block a few times, if you know what I mean. The pull of temptation to do what is wrong to disregard God or disobey whatever authority it be, like a police or a parent or a coach or a teacher, that pull is in there. And it doesn't go away as you get older. And if you do not know how to overcome temptation when it starts knocking, the whole idea of maturity in your life, it kind of evaporates. Because you and I need to know how to interface with all the temptations that are before us. Otherwise, it's just kind of like one wreck after another wreck, if you know what I mean. USA Today uh, did a study not too long ago of 3,000 U.S. adults to identify differences and similarities between what men and women say is, says tempts them the most. So, sex, for instance. Men, 50%. Women, 22%. Money, men, 14%. Women, 15%. What tempts them the most? Power. This one I found to be really surprising. For men, according to their survey, only 2% of men, that's what tempts them the most. For women, 7%. Food, for men, 29%. For women, 
Alcohol, men, 7%. Women, 2%. And this survey doesn't cover the you know, temptations like to lie and steal and cheat or have outbursts of anger, uh, dishonor parents. It doesn't cover any of those things. But it kind of gives you an idea of the kind of temptations that you and I experience on an everyday occurrence. So how is it that we can truly triumph in the face of all these temptations? And I really think that perhaps the, the whole allure of temptation is as strong now as it has ever been, specifically and primarily because of the internet. Technology, media, all of this is all amoral. It's not neither bad nor good. It's how it's used. Certainly there are magazines, but when you look at TV and just how it just continues to pump images and, and shape values and morals in our country, and it's alluring. I mean, they're changing scenes like every three seconds. There's always something new happening, and it keeps you engaged. But now you've got internet, which is an incredibly powerful tool, and so many good things can be done with the internet. But it's also become extremely destructive. Images that... One time you had to work hard and, and go to seedy places in your city. No longer. They're available. And in the privacy of your own home, and it's creating the destruction of lives on a widespread basis. If you don't know how to face off with temptation, you're like a fish in a barrel facing a man with a net. So how do you do it? Well, that's why the book of James is so powerful. In James chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, he's going to outline how you and I can really experience victory in the face of all the temptations that we face. And he begins by identifying the source of our struggles. So let's take a look at it, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. So he's pointing out that temptation is there. It's not if you face temptation, it's when. And you and I are going to face temptation, a wide variety of temptations, on a regular basis. And the, what happens is, is that we have a propensity to want to blame others. Or someone else. Because we've bought into a particular temptation. The original blame game gets started all the way back in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve. Remember when they sinned and, and disobeyed God? Uh, you know, Adam's like, ah, oh, it's the woman you gave me. And then Eve is like, ah, oh, the serpent deceived me. And you know, Adam, it's really interesting, when Adam said it was the woman... This is actually what he said in Genesis chapter 3, verse 12. He blamed God and said, really, God, you're the problem. The reason that I'm tempted and kind of bought into this is because of you. This is what he said. In effect, Adam blamed God. He said, the woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit of the tree, and I ate it. And he's like, you know, God, I was doing great without the, my wife. And you gave her to me. Was he doing great? No, it was terrible, right? And so what he did, though, is he blamed God. You're responsible. And that's why this is written here. Don't say, verse 13, when you're being tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by 
And that is because in order to be, in order for to be to tempt someone from evil, you yourself have to be tempted. There has to be something about you, this propensity to sin. And that is impossible, for God is holy. And so he's holy, and he's not trying to create sin, and so you can't blame God. If you're looking to find out who to blame, all you have to do is look in the mirror. And he's going to explain this. He's going to actually lay out the process of how you and I bite into temptation, and it leads to sin, and it's resolved. And you see, falling prey to temptation, it's actually a process. You don't just like, uh, suddenly like, ah, the person became an adulterer, like, just like that. No, no. There was a process. And this process, although very simple, is extremely effective. And today, I want to just outline Satan's strategy. It's found right here in the text of how he convinces you that the temptations that he's throwing your way are worth you buying in and the consequences for you to do just that. So, let's take a look at it. The first, first step, and there's really only two steps. The first step is found in verse 14. It is enticement. Take a look, verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. So the word carried away was actually like to like lure into a trap. And the word entice is a term that was used in fishing, like to catch with bait. And that's how it works. We're enticed, we're, we're caught with like bait, and it looks alluring, and it looks attractive. But all of it, notice what he says in verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his what? Own lust. It starts from within. You see, we have desires. Many of them are good desires. But what happens is, lust engages and says, you want this, and you want to use it in ways that God has defined as out of bounds. He has said is sin. And many of our desires are good. Like, for instance, the desire for food. That's, a, that's good, right? Food and drink, right? In fact, if you don't eat, you die. But gluttony, despite the fact that almost no American Christian will ever discuss this, gluttony, overeating, is actually a sin. And you can read, like the book of Proverbs, and it highlights that. Um, the desire for sex, is that wrong? No. It's actually one of God's great gifts, given in the context of marriage between one husband and one wife, married for life, great gift. Sexual expression. You have the procreation of the race. Outside of God's defined parameters, though, why it's wrong. And it leads to all sorts of destruction. God knows best. What happens, though, is that we take things, some of the things that can be good, some of which are outright evil, and we turn them into, like, idols. We need them. We need to find our source of happiness and peace and security and identity and power and strength. If I only have this, what a cool experience. And what happens is we fixate this and these idols, and they can be anything. They, they, all of a sudden, they take the importance that God is meant to have and we fixate and focus on them. And
and we buy into the lie, but it all starts from within. You're shaped not only by these internal drives, but even kind of your conditioning through uh, the environments that you grew up, um, how you were trained, where your uh, things that, uh, part of your upbringing, personal choices, all of this kicks in and they are your own lusts. Remember Jeremiah 17, 9 says it's the heart that is desperately wicked, right? It deceives you. Jesus said this, Matthew chapter, excuse me, Mark chapter 7, verses 21 and following, all of these issues actually start from within. Listen to what he said. Jesus, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts and fornications and thefts and murders and adulteries and deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit and sensuality and envy and slander and pride and foolishness, all of these evil things proceed from within, and they defile the man. So this is the strategy. Satan puts forth things that are found enticing, enticing to you, and all of a sudden you're like, I want this. I want this person. I want this thing. I, I want to be popular. I, I want to feel like I mean something and I, I'm important. And so there's not necessarily wrong, but what happens is you fixate and you turn these things into God, little G-O-D-S, and you're enticed. And they're all in front of you. They're, they're meant to like take your mind places that it's not supposed to go, or you engage in behavior that God clearly says is wrong. That's not just sexual. It might be dealing with money or to lie or to cheat or to steal or whatever it might be to find your sense of purpose, peace, and identity apart from God. They're always enticements. And then the second step, once you and I start engaging the will and buy in and buy in, then you have the second step, entrapment. Look at verse 14 where he kind of spells out what entrapment looks like. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust, then verse 15, then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. See, when the will is engaged, you got the you got this lust that we're within, and you're like, I want this. And you engage and you buy into the external allurement that you're seeing, whether it's on your phone or on the screen or you're, you're just watching or there's an opportunity for you to do what is wrong, whether it's steal, no one's going to know about this, whatever it might be, when that happens, and he's kind of comparing it to kind of like conception, sperm and egg meat, creating this life. Well, in the negative sense, when opportunity meets your will and your lust when they meet together, when you engage, then it leads to this process of entrapment. And really, you and I, we've got to learn how to say no. Part of why we're walking through this is so that you know what you're facing, and you can call a spade a spade. The problem is, is that we kind of just give in. There are some people that have never really considered saying no to what's in front of them. C.S. Lewis in his book, Pure Christianity, kind of talks about this, and it's really interesting what he writes. No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. 
Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the Russian army by fighting it, not by giving in. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. We never find out the strength of the evil, evil impulses inside us until we try to fight it. You see, we're, there's like these urges. And if we don't learn how to submit and yield ourselves to God, we, we find out that we just give themselves over. You want to find out how strong the temptation is? You keep saying no. John Owen, 1600 uh, theologian in the 1600s, this is what he said about this. However strong a castle may be, if a treacherous party, reside, uh, if a treacherous party resides inside, ready to betray at the first opportunity possible, the castle cannot be kept safe from the enemy. Traitors occupy our own hearts, ready to side with every temptation and to surrender to them all. And that's what happens. What could be a routine desire becomes a runaway desire, and we engage. And remember, it's all, remember verse 14? Carried away like a trap, trapping an animal. Or like a lure, or that has bait on a hook, meant to trap a fish. And you know how it is. Like, when you go fishing, you buy this bait. And why, why do you buy the bait? You aren't buying the bait because you plan on feeding the fish, right? If you're out there fishing with your grandfather, and all those worms that you bought, and you just dump them over the side because you think this is a fishing expedition where all you're doing is feeding the fish, you're totally misunderstanding, and you're going to get a reaction out of your grandfather. Because after all, that's not how this works. When you're fishing, what you're really doing is you're taking the bait and you're putting it on the hook, right? And you want to convince those little fish that are in there, and hopefully they're not so little, in those brush piles, that this is what you want. You want this little worm dangling in front of that brush pile, right? And so that's how it works. And so that fish, you see that worm, and you're going to do things kind of like flicking your wrist, right? You're doing everything you can to convince that fish Oh, this is a really good worm here. Like it, it's big. It's active. You want it, right? And that fish is looking at it. And that fish is kind of, he might start nibbling on it, just kind of testing it out there. Like, this is kind of weird that right in front of my brush pile comes this worm. You kind of nibble on it. And then what happens? That fishman goes, oh, got a nibble or two. And then it hits on it. And what the fisherman does is he pulls back up. He sets that hook. And all of a sudden, that fish is being taken places it never thought it would, i.e., to your boat, right? And you pull it up, right? And, you're, and you take pictures of it. And uh, actually, in first service, um, one kid said, actually, you eat the fish. No, we're sport fishermen, right? Like, look at the fish, right? And we're going to throw it back in. And, but that's what happens. The fish had no idea that was coming. And that's how it works. You see, sin looks alluring. Temptation looks really attractive. But what happens is it'll take you places that you never expected. In fact, what does the text say? Verse 15, then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. You buy into it. I'm going I'm to stare at this image, and I'm going to let it fuel my passions. I'm going to go after this person. I'm going to say this. I'm going to steal this. I'm going to take this. I'm going to buy this. I know I don't have the money for it, but I'm going to do it because I feel like it. I'm going to lie. I'm going to turn my phone and make it an idol. 
Each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. You see that? If you're a Christian, this, you need to understand this is not spiritual death. Because if you've been united with Christ, even when we sin, by virtue of the fact that we're united to Christ, when we're in Christ, by faith, you can never, never lose your salvation. But engaging in sin always leads to death. Uh, in some cases, it was physical death. And you're like, really? Let me give you an example. To show you how God treats sin, especially even, and how he sees sin even in a believer's life. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when he's talking about communion? And he said, and he's pointing out that there were obviously people in the Corinthian church that really didn't take God's holiness seriously or, or communion as all that important. They didn't examine themselves. They really weren't concerned or committed to holiness and exalting God. And it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, that God brought judgment upon them because they took the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And it says, for this reason, there's some of you that are weak and sick, and some of you are asleep, meaning a euphemism for death. You die. Because sin always brings death. It may not bring physical death. Oftentimes it doesn't. But for instance, you sin. Uh, you lie. You lose integrity. Death. You uh, violate your vows, or you, you've made, you've got a covenant relationship with your family or your small group, and you violate those. It brings death to relationships. You buy stuff that you know that you shouldn't. In fact, you've agreed with your spouse. We've got to live within our budget. We've got to live below our budget. But you keep just going and spending. I know of a couple that divorced just because of that. It always, it brings death. Sometimes it's a slow death. Sometimes it's like, like something in your flesh, like gangrene or cancer. It's like, whoa, i got to get rid of this. Why, if you don't address it, why it's just going to continue to spread? It, it brings death. And that's what this text says. I want to tell you something. You can choose how you live, and you make your decisions. But when it comes to temptation, you buy into it, you can't pick your consequences. You can uh, follow your flesh. You can give in to your temptations. But you can't determine the outcome. And some of us have had to learn this the very hard way. You never thought it would result to this. That's because this is how temptation works. Satan wants you to have such a short-term, myopic view, focus on the here and now, what's in front of you right now. Don't think about anything long-term. Think about how good this would feel, how fun this would be, how cool of an experience. Wow, you may never get an opportunity like this. No one will ever know. And what happens is you buy in, and the hook sets. Satan doesn't want you to think beyond the immediate what's in front of you, just like the worm and the hook. For instance, when you're face-to-face -face with temptation and you're looking to buy in, you're not thinking about the consequences next hour or next week. You're not thinking about the consequences with your spouse, spouse or, your, or your family or your friends or your job or the people you work with. 
Here's something that I find that when people buy into adultery, they take the hook, they never think of the consequences for the next generation and that someday I'm going to have to explain this to my grandkids. They don't ever think about that. It's like sin and temptation is blinding. It just focuses you on the hook. But of course, it doesn't look like a hook. It looks like a worm, like something you want. And this is why James is saying, listen, you want maturity? From a seasoned pastor says, this is what it looks like. This is the process, enticement and entrapment. I mean, it's exactly what you find in Genesis. You remember in Genesis chapter 3? I thought I'd just read this to you. Genesis chapter 3. Let me just read to you what it looked like with Adam and Eve. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Did God really say that? And the woman, she's sharp. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the tree of the garden we may eat all the trees. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden... God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. When Adam communicated this to his wife, he must have added that. It's like, stay away from it, don't even touch it. Okay, God said you'll not die, you will, you will die, and he told her, just don't even touch it. Listen, we got all these other trees, have at it, have a great time. And she knew, and she was able to communicate truth. But Satan doesn't give up so easily, does he? No, no, no. He's been after this a long time. Let me show you what it looked like when he got started. Verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, <laughs> You surely will not die. Come on. No, no. Did God say that? Oh, God, what was he thinking? Oh, he's just holding out on you. In fact, this is what he, the serpent said. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like it. God, knowing good and evil. See, God knows that when you actually do this, you're going to be like him. Wouldn't you like to be your own God? That'd be pretty cool. Look how cool God is. How would you, wouldn't you like to be like God, knowing good and evil? Oh, yeah. You see what he's doing? He's kind of, he's got setting that hook there, and she's thinking about that pretty strongly. And verse 6, and when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, Oh, this is pretty good. And that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. You see what happened? She took it, and the hook was set. But for Adam, you see, Eve was deceived. Adam was not deceived. He just flat out disobeyed. He knew, he watched. He should have hacked that snake to pieces. No, he's just standing by watching this all happen. He knows exactly what's going on. Eve just hands it to him and like, I'm just going to disobey God flat out. Not even going to argue on this one. And it plunged humanity into depravity, enticement, and entrapment. In fact, because of Adam's sin, we have a sin nature. We, it's just part of our DNA to do what is wrong and disregard God and try to find life, meaning, purpose, happiness, all apart from God. It shows us why we need a Savior. And so that's exactly what God did. He actually sent his son to enter into humanity, live a perfect life, fulfill all the law, all righteousness, die 
pays the penalty for our sins, and rises again so that you and I will receive his righteousness and forgiveness. Not by virtue of the fact that we're good, because we're not, but by virtue of the fact that God is gracious and loving, merciful and kind. And that's the gospel. And so, friends, the question is, what are you going to do when you face temptation? You're going to face it. You want another example? Remember David? David, you remember? He's, when kings were supposed to go out to war, and he'd been doing that. He had a long track record. David's a good guy. I mean, God used him to write the scripture. Awesome king. Had a lot of great things going for him. He decided, you know what? I'm going to take a year off. Been there, done that kind of mentality. And so he's walking around the top of his castle, right? And he spies this woman. Like, whoa, and she's bathing, and he's like fixating on her. He's like, I gotta have her. And so he sends his little servants, and they're trying to warn him, and having nothing to it. And he has this adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. Of course, he never saw the consequences. Never. Oh, he's just focused on the moment, because that's how temptation works, right? He never thought about the fact that um, Bathsheba became pregnant, that child dies. Never thought about, like, this will result in me basically orchestrating the murder of her husband, who's one of my key soldiers. Never thought that this would have implications with his own daughter, Tamar, and her being violated. You see, the bait always keeps you from focusing on the consequences of the sin. Duh, don't even think about it. That's why verse 16 is so important. I've got it underlined in my Bible. Do not... Be deceived, my beloved brethren. It's actually in the Greek. It's a negative present imperative. It, it could read this. Stop being deceived. You're missing it. Stop it. Stop it right now. Stop being deceived. So how is it that you and I can experience success? What is the strength of our success when we're facing temptations that are so vile and so powerful and coming from us everywhere, from TVs and screens uh, to just people as we're walking around? I mean, I mean, it's just everywhere. How can we experience success? What is the strength in our success? Well, he writes it here in verse 17 and 18. This is not where you want to like just take a little nap and just kind of coast right on into your roast beef sandwich, Okay. You want to walk in because the difference is whether or not you understand and take heed to this to these two verses. You want to experience the strength of success? Look at what he says in verse 17. Every good thing and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. What he's calling for is a God-centered perspective on life. Everything good in your life has come from God. Physically, spiritually, relationally, financially. Everything good has come from God. God has given it to you. And so when you think of like uh, freedom from sin, a relationship with God and the Word and the Holy Spirit, we think of our relationships and the many, many things that God has blessed your life with, the friendships, the wealth that you have, everything God has given you, their gifts, they're good gifts, they're even perfect gifts, and they're from God. He's calling you to a God-centered perspective that you focus on his goodness. They're coming down, and it's, the idea is they just keep coming down. God is like that. He's just so gracious. And they, these good gifts, they just keep coming down to our life. He's referred to as the Father of Lights, which is a Jewish expression for God as the Creator, and the lights being like the sun, the moon, and the stars. 
it looks like they kind of, you know, they they have various shadows, and that's because they're, you know, we're like the Earth is rotating around the sun. The stars are also on kind of like they're moving and we're moving, and it looks like there's variation, but there's no variation with God. He's unchanging. He is consistent. He never changes. There's no variation or shifting shadows. God's not playing games with you. He's consistent, and he wants you to develop a consistent looking to him as master and lord. You know, when they train dogs, uh, in fact, if you've got a dog that needs some training, maybe this will be helpful. Uh, one of the things they want to do is, is train the dog to always obey the master. That is a nice goal if you have a pet, right? It doesn't work with cats so well, but dogs, there's a chance. And what you, like, what they'll do is they'll put a piece of, like, meat or cheese that the dog would really like, and they'll put it in front of the dog, and then they'll say no. The master will say no, and the dog sees the meat or cheese, and it really wants that, but it understands that if I keep focusing on this, it doesn't matter what the master's saying, I'm just going to eat this. So you know what they do? The dog fixes its look back on the eyes of the master. And it does so because it knows if I focus on the temptation, I'll buy into it. And if you're thinking like, that's so mean to do that with the dog. No, it's actually not. Because see, the master always knows what is best. There will be a situation where maybe it's dangerous. And your dog needs to be able to obey when you say no or stop. Otherwise, it's going to have, it'll be messing with the rattlesnake or whatever is there in front of it. And friends, we need to take a lesson from this, these pets. We need to learn how to fix and focus our attention upon God. He's given us all these good gifts, and he knows what is best. He's not saying no to all these things because he's trying to wreck our life or make it miserable. Actually, he wants us to experience the fulfillment of these good gifts, and to use them in the context in which he's given. And so we have to learn to focus upon him. And with what Satan's doing, he's always trying to tempt you that God's holding out on you. It's interesting, Satan even tried to tempt Jesus the exact same way. Remember the temptation in the desert before Jesus begins his public ministry? Satan basically said, hey, if your father really loved you, you wouldn't even be here hungry in the desert. But Jesus just keeps focusing on the father, fulfilling the will of the father. You see, the goodness of God is a great barrier against yielding to temptation. And so what you do, you just keep focusing on the goodness. It is what Moses said, listen, don't forget God and his goodness. But of course, Israel, they moved to the promised land. This is all good. Guess what they did? They forgot God and his goodness, and they'd buy into idols. And they were worshiping little rock statues. And they were living as if God doesn't exist. And God had to bring judgment. Remember uh, King David? Remember the sin with Bathsheba? Well, God sends his prophet Nathan. And he schedules an appointment with King David. Finally, he's able to get in. The man's really busy, you know. And he gets in, and he tells... Gave a little story, and he basically calls him out and says, you're the man. You have violated what God said. You're the one at fault in this situation. And listen to what he said. Nathan said to David, you're the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. Look how good I've been to you. Is it, it is I who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if it had been too little, I would have added to you many thing, more things like this. See how good God's been? Why have you despised the word of the Lord doing evil in his sight? 
You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. You see, what he did is he forgot about God's goodness. You see, the first barrier to buying in temptation is understanding God does bring judgment to sin. But the second barrier to buying in temptation is to focus on the goodness of God. When you're thinking about the goodness of God, you're not going to be buying into what Satan is offering. You see, God's gifts are always better than Satan's bargains. But of course, the choice is yours. You see, trusting in the goodness of God keeps us from falling into the evil of temptation. And so he says in verse 18, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be kind of the first fruits among his creatures. In the exercise of his will, what he's saying is find your identity in God. What God has done is he's like taking you and revealed the word of truth. You understand the gospel and the power of believing in Jesus and the forgiveness of sins and that you're a new creature in Christ. He's given the word to train you, to bring you to maturity. And at the first fruits, and what Israel would do is when they, at the very beginning of harvest, when they first had some like grain, they would go quick and harvest it and they'd bring it before God as an offering. And what he's saying is that you and I are like first fruits. We are the very first ones of, of a God bringing a redemption out of a lost humanity. We're meant to live differently. We're to show the world what it means to know God. And that we don't have to buy into these temptations all the time. We're living as first fruits. And so just do this. When you're tempted to sin, turn to your faith in Him. When you're tempted to sin, turn to your faith in Him. And as God's children, He wants us to be so satisfied with Christ that really the things of this world, the temptations... They're just not that alert because we're so satisfied with him. I find in my own temptations, um, when I face them, it's when I come to a place where I'm dissatisfied. That seems to be rather alluring, and maybe you can relate to that. But like Paul wrote in the book of Romans, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. Romans 13, verse 14. And I'm going to give you just some real practical help because temptation is very real. 1 Corinthians 10.13, you might want to write this verse down. It says this, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. There's always a way out. You don't have to go down that path. There's always a way out. Let me give you some more practical points. Just continually put yourself under God's protection and focus on his goodness. And that requires that you pray. When you start praying and thanking God for his goodness, and you've got a Christ-centered, God-centered perspective, you're going to find that you're going to face temptation differently. And when you're being tempted, let's say you're being tempted by someone from the opposite sex, it's going to happen. Pray for that person's purity. That will really help the situation. Here's something else. Um... Identify the enticement. Call it a temptation. It'll bring clarity and it'll give perspective. Just call it what it is. Um, recognize that this temptation really is a false promise. It really can't deliver what I think it will. In fact, I've read the book of James. It leads to death and destruction. I don't want it. Um, here's another. This is just common sense. Stay away from the things that cause you to stumble. Okay? If you're watching TV... And there's just stuff like 
just descended my mind in the wrong direction, whatever it might be, change the channel or just do something else. If you, if drinking could be a problem, don't like, I'm going to show everybody how strong I am by going to this bar. Wrong. That's just stupid. Don't do that. Stay away from the things that cause you to sin. It is better to flee than to fail. Let me give you another. Uh, just continually focus on God's goodness. Make it a pattern to cultivate things like prayer, practices like reading the word. What it does is it feeds your soul. It keeps you focused on God, and you get stronger. You're not going to be like a pinball just getting banged around. You actually, you're growing in godliness and strength. And all of us have succumbed to temptation, right? Every one of us has failed at different points. That's why I like in 1 John 1, 9, we just confess our sins. He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, we just confess, God, I need you. I agree. Be my strength. And so when you're tempted to sin, turn to your faith in him. Let's pray. Lord, you spell it out in such amazing clarity. Our need to know you and your goodness and what temptation really is and the enticements and the entrapment and the devastation it causes. And so right now, God, we're going to confess any sin to you where we've bought in temptation. So would you do that right now? And Lord, we want to live in your strength. So help us to focus on your goodness and be mindful and to be smart and be godly and grow in holiness. And for the person who's come here today and their whole life has been entrapped and they get it, help them to pray with me right now and say, God, I turn from self and sin, and I trust in Jesus as my Savior. I need forgiveness in life. And so, God, be glorified in our lives. This we ask as we pray in Jesus' name.